0: Hello, this is Dr. Kimberly and welcome to the second episode of TN Therapy. I hope that you enjoyed the first episode, so thank you for your continued listening. This is the first time joining me. Uh, Welcome and hopefully you'll go back and listen to my trailer episodes as well as my first episode. So this episode I'm continuing to talk a little bit more about who I am as a therapist and the work that I do with Tea and therapy and that premise that I have as a psychologist and as a community educator. Uh, last time I talked about my theoretical orientation, which was Atlerian psychology. And the other leg of the foundation that I have is my practice as a Buddhist. So I am a Buddhist. I am of the Pure Land Buddhism. Um, there is a temple here in Indianapolis that I have been a part of for almost. Um, Ten years now, so um, that is how I've resigned as a Buddhist. I'm fully integrated into that uh, culture and that community there. So, welcome again. And um, before we settle in, I just wanted to remind you all that to sit in and to join me for a nice little round of tea as well and so in order to do that let's take a moment here before we continue and let's check in with joy so hey joy what's the tea
1: thank you dr kimberly i have the tea when i think of tea and buddhism i think of the buddhist way of life monks meditating or working in mountainous areas serene calm in order to receive the highest inspirations, monks have drunk tea to cultivate the mind and body. According to TeaBox.com, the Buddhists and the English are credited with being the with creating the most great traditions of tea. Of tea. Not only have they been consumers, but growers as well, especially green and oolongs. Buddhists created guidebooks, including Cha Ching a very comprehensive guideline on ceremonial protocols that included how to raise the tea to a certain height and in order to pour it into the cup. The Japanese monks contributed by, uh, by contributing steam frying instead of steaming. Buddhists domesticated the tea plant by creating shrubs instead of the tree. In order to make cultivating easier, tea ceremonies were centered around harmony and peace. So, these are all things that I think of when I think of tea in Buddhism. Well, that's the tea.
0: Thank you, Joy. Thank you for giving us that wonderful information. So, for those of you listening, I hope you have a moment or perhaps later to grab yourself a wonderful cup of green or oolong tea. And we'll get right into the next segment. Thanks. So what I wanted to do today was to talk about Buddhism and dividing that into different sections. So the first section is a little bit about how I came to become a Buddhist and how I, that landed in my life, and then also just different key elements of Buddhism that I think are relevant in the work that I do as a psychologist and, then how, so, and how I lead my life as well. So with Buddhism, uh, my upbringing in in regards to religion, I did not grow up in a household that was Buddhist. Uh, So Buddhism was something that I didn't really discover in depth until my 40s. And actually, I have been a member of my Buddhist temple for approximately 10 years now. And one of my earliest memories about, I think, Buddha or Buddhism, I have had a Distant uncle who was a very short man. He was a short man, he had a big belly, he was bald head. And I don't know where I may have studied Buddhism before, but at one point I looked at my uncle and I then nicknamed him because of his belly and his bald head. I nicknamed him, nicknamed him Uncle Buddha. And so that I think was one of the first references that I had maybe one of those seeds that were planted for Buddhism. When I was working on my doctorate degree, I was searching for additional sources of income and I then went into training to become a yoga teacher and through that training I was exposed to different types of religions different philosophies and at the time I was looking into both a little bit about Buddhism and Hinduism and really really uh, reading upon both of those however when I was um, during this time of my studies as well my partner uh, was Vietnamese continues to be Vietnamese and was also Buddhist. And I think that was an additional seed that was planted as well. And when I was here in Indianapolis and you know reading into Buddhism and reading into Hinduism, at the time, I then ventured upon a meetup group. and the meetup group actually met at a Vietnamese temple. And they had American uh, meditation group that was the Saturday before the Vietnamese, Translated service uh, on Sunday So I happened to go there And I think I went Maybe two times To the um, Both the English meditation And then to the Vietnamese um, Service and chanting And honestly When I went there It really felt like I was home Um, There were maybe A handful of other Americans Maybe no more than five At the time they were all Um Caucasian. I think there was one that was Vietnamese and American. And I think for me, it was looking out in the room full of other, full of Vietnamese individuals. And for some reason I felt at home and being a minority, I didn't feel like I was a minority anymore because I was with this group of technically minority individuals. And it is really just that alone really resonated with me. And so it was shortly after that that the opportunity came up for me to take what was considered like the first um, Buddhist vows. And during that time, you're, you're given also a Buddhist name. And my Buddhist name is Juan Bin. Bin is actually how you pronounce it. And it's Vietnamese. And Juan is the lineage name, which would be the surname. And Bin means peace. Uh, So my Buddhist name is Peace, and it was very interesting because after the first, you know, after I received those refuge vows, and then the next week I went back and, you know, one of the nuns was like, what's your name? And it was just so nice to, you know, names I think are really important, but it was just that sense of belonging and that pride that in a way I felt that they had for me in being part of their congregation, being part of their religion, and then just that pride that I had for myself in you know, taking this vow, acquiring this name and being part of a community. And when I received my name, it was translated, you know, as to um, you know, taking the vows of what my name meant. And at the time, my the translation was that since I had become a Buddhist, that they recognized that my teacher, the master at the temple, had recognized that there had been some discomfort and maybe dis ease in my life. And gave me the name of peace because she said, now that I'm a Buddhist, that I would end up having more peace in my life. And I really believe that that has been true for me. My life has not been perfect. you know. I still have my ups. I still have my downs. But, it, you know, since I've joined the temple, there are times that I look at situations in my life and I think, you know, wow, I could not have done this, you know, years ago. And part of that, uh, I'll get into talking about, you know, some of the Key components of of Buddhism and some of the practice elements but overall I think it's just that ability to be able to ground myself and to be centered um, and my own accountability and a lot of this is it's it's come in this process of this 10 years of the teachings of Buddhism um, being a member of the congregation traveling to India with them and just just growth in general Um, so you know, that's my loose start about how I came into Buddhism. It's basically an exploration, as we should all do in life. Um, from that, then moving to the meetup group, and then once I was in the meetup group, um, actually having the opportunity to take the Buddhist vows, and it was just a place where I just really felt at home. So, um, I'll talk a little bit more about some of the vows that I've taken uh, in regards to being a Buddhist. And you don't have to, when I think about Buddhism as well, I think that there can be two different components of Buddhism. I think that there can definitely be Buddhism that is definitely a religion. And then I also think that Buddhism can be part of a philosophy as well. And I think that individuals who are drawn to me as a therapist because I do have a Buddhist background are drawn to the philosophy of Buddhism. That within my practice, I'm not encouraging anyone, I'm not recommending that anyone go to my temple. Really, I kind of like. I kind of like to be selfish in that and still have a temple for myself. Um, but I don't ask them to convert their religion. And you know, Buddha never did either. It was uh, in regard to Buddhism. Buddha was saying, you know, this worked for me. This is how I found my enlightenment. Give it a try. If it works for you, great. If not, that's okay. Um, but we won't get into too much about. The different stories about Buddha and Buddhism. You can look research those on your own, or maybe another podcast. Um, but when I joined the temple, as I mentioned, one of the first um, vows that I took were, were the refuge vows, and I received a certificate for that. And I took those vows in August, August two thousand nine. And so this August, I will be technically I'll be eleven years old. I'll be an eleven year old Buddhist, and. Part of that is taking the the three refuge. And when you take refuge, you take refuge in the Buddha, the Dharma and the Sangha. And when I talk about people and if you're looking at, you know, the philosophy of Buddhism. And you don't want to convert into Buddhism. You don't want to to become a Buddhist. Buddha is an individual that is enlightened. An individual has that, that, that teaching. So a Buddha can be translated also into your teacher and uh, taking refuge in the Dharma, and the Dharma is teachings. So you can take refuge in particular teachings as well. And then the Sangha is typically that community, and it's a community that lives in harmony and, and, and awareness. So with the three refuge, the first one is I take refuge in the Buddha, the one who shows me the way in this life. I take refuge in the Dharma, the way of understanding and of love. And I take refuge in the Sangha, the community that lives in harmony and awareness. Uh, I don't want to do too much comparison to other religions, but you can think of that as if there is a God or your higher power. The teach the uh, Bible or any other type of teachings can be your dharma, and then the sangha, of course, can still be that community that you may be a part of. And basically, taking refuge is these three things are what I'm going to go back to uh, when I need that help, when I need that assistance. Uh, with the first. Ceremony as well. So not only did I take the three refuge, but then there were five precepts that we have to do as well. And the precepts you you're cultivating. So it's really a way of practice and things to remember when you're engaged in the practice. The first one is to cultivate compassion. And in order to to cultivate compassion, I'm determined not to kill. Okay, so there's no killing. Uh, to cultivate loving kindness, I'm determined not to steal. To cultivate responsibility, I'm determined not to commit sexual misconduct. To cultivate loving speech and deep listening, I'm determined not to lie. And to cultivate good health, both physical and mental, I'm determined not to use alcohol or another intoxicant. Now, so some people might say, well, gee, like, do Buddhists get to have fun? And so, yes, we do get to have fun. And killing. So definitely, you know, you don't want to kill another human being. And there are some Buddhists that also um, are vegetarian, because we don't want to kill meat or animals. And there are some that are not based on, you know, their own lifestyle or their region, um, if they can grow other crops or not. But definitely, you know, killing, nobody wants to engage in killing, stealing, no one wants to engage in stealing. So it's that loving kindness and also you know, not only stealing like material possessions, but I don't want to steal someone's joy. You know, I don't want to, um, if someone, you know, says, gee, you know, I, I, this is my new house. Come look at my new house. Isn't it great? Yes, it is great. You know, to go in and say, no, it's this awful house, you know, in a way, then that's also stealing as well. Uh, Sexual misconduct. It is basically saying you're looking at you know, you're not going to commit any any type of sexual offense. And it doesn't say, it's not saying that you're going to be um, abstinent. It's sexual misconduct. So you're going to make sure that you're engaged in sexual activity, that it's consensual and that it's in the appropriate places as well. So you don't have to refrain from having sex at all when you're a Buddhist, unless you are a uh, monastic, unless you're a, a, a nun or a monk. And to cultivate loving speech, um, so again, loving speech, n- to not lie, and the there are 10 precepts as well. And they'll talk a little bit more about um, the different types of speech that you should and should not engage in. And when we were looking at alcohol and intoxicants, Again, a lot of this, unless you're a monk or a nun, that you're looking at this moderation. You can, you can drink a little bit of alcohol. You don't want to, you know, engage in excessive amount, excessive amounts of alcohol. And also, when you think about intoxicants, you're also looking at what are you taking in through your senses. And for me, I think before, and you know, this is me. So I'm not passing judgment on anyone else. But an intoxicant for me, before discovering Buddhism and years before this. I was caught up in reality TV and like daytime reality TV, like Jerry Springer. (laughs) Okay. And so that was just this bombarding me with this intoxicant. And so now I'm just more diligent about, you know, what type of music that I'm listening to. Um, And I have my moments where, you know, I'm listening to what people would consider trap music or rap music. And But I don't want to engage in too much of that. Cause again, I'm looking at um, what's going to be cultivating that good mental health for me and if it's not cultivating the good mental and physical health then those are intoxicants that I want to try to minimize and maybe possibly even refrain from um, so basically you know august 29 2009 is when I first engaged in my venture toward buddhism acquired my, my name which definitely which means peace and then beginning to think about where do I go for refuge And then the basic five precepts, uh, five precepts, no killing, no stealing, no sexual misconduct, no lies and minimizing intoxicants. And those became the basis of how I would think about my life, uh, living my life and steps to remember when there was decisions that I need to make going through those five precepts as well. after the five precepts, and this happened uh, about a year afterwards, September the 4th, 2010, I then took that to a, a deeper step, and the next step was in taking the 10 wholesome precepts. So instead of the regular five, then there were five other precepts that were added onto that. And as I talked about before, uh, one of those precepts, again, is looking at speech. And um, talk a little bit about that. So you have the first five, so that's again, no killing, no stealing, no sexual misconduct, refraining from lying, um, and then refraining from intoxicants. The um, When you're taking the ten wholesome precepts, then the additional one is I vow to refrain from acting two-faced, um, but to reconcile strife so again helping to minimize any type of argument disagreement between other people and it is a layman's term so you know so not acting in a two-faced manner the other vow was to refrain refrain from being sugar-coated but to speak gently and with discipline also I vow to refrain from harsh speech but to speak meaningfully I vow to refrain from greed and stinginess but to cultivate giving I vow to refrain from anger and hatred, but to cultivate a mind of compassion and non-attachment. And I vow to refrain from wrong views, but to have belief in the Dharma. And those were the basic uh, ten precepts. Again, it's adding five onto the initial five five uh, precepts, five precept vows. And um, from this, so those were the first two. uh, certificates or so that I received the first two vows that I took a total of 10 vows and after that there was some time after that that I initially then ended up going on different retreats uh with the nuns and for two of these different retreats I would take monastic vows temporary vows and there's a different set of those which I will not go into um because those are really reserved for the monastics and one of my The best experience that I think I had was I went to India uh, with the nuns and other Vietnamese individuals and another American. And we were scheduled to be there, I think, for about a month. (laughs) We ended up being there three weeks and it was really great because we shortened our time because we left when there was a hurricane that was happening. So that delayed our travels for a few days and it was quite the journey to get there but it was a pilgrimage looking at the sacred spaces that buddha himself had traveled and just to really have that immersion into the the culture of buddhists also the culture of india and then at the time also been taking the monastic vows and when i took the temporary monastic vows you know it was involved shaving my head and you know wearing the traditional clothes you know all the time and it was just an overall like really good experience that I really can't even uh, adequately talk about or write about but it was just very um, very instrumental in my process of becoming Buddhist and the Buddhist the Buddhist journey that I have and prior to the trip in India the next certification that I received was the certification of the lay bodhisattva and what a bodhisattva is, is basically a bodhisattva is a being who takes a vow to eliminate all the suffering in the world. I know that's a pretty big vow, right? So the bodhisattva basically is this bodhisattva is a, is a um, individual of compassion. So there's a bodhisattva. If you look at it, if you're comparing it with Christianity, you're looking at a disciple. And so this is a disciple of compassion. And Wanyan is the bodhisattva who, who took a vow to eliminate all the suffering on earth before she could then reach this point of enlightenment. And what she said was, if I can't eliminate all these beings from hell, then, you know, she was going to disintegrate into pieces. And so she found herself that through this, her practice and her journey, that she was actually able to eliminate suffering. So she freed individuals from the gates of hell. And when she thought her task was done, she looked back and she saw more people entering the gates of hell. And she then began to disintegrate. But before this happened, she asked and she had called on the other bodhisattvas and she asked for their, their assistance in helping her. And so they came in and they helped her and they, they in a way sort of put her back together. So... When you see the image of the the deity that has the different arms, then this is actually one representation of yin, the bodhisattva of compassion. And in taking these bodhisattva vows, um, what I've done I think is also with part of being a psychologist, it's saying that one of my roles, my primary role in life is to help eliminate the suffering from another individual. Uh, Buddhism, we do believe that there is a type of reincarnation. We also believe that there is this ultimate pure land, which could be in this equivalent to a heaven. Uh, but as a Bodhisattva, if I die, I I don't get to go to this heaven until all the suffering has been eliminated in the world. And then I get to go to this heaven. Until then, um, if I pass away, I continue to come back in life and I continue to come back and to help free people from help people free themselves from their suffering. So uh, the Bodhisattva, we also have a different set of vows that we recite every other week. Uh, Again, I will not repeat those for the sake of this podcast. Um, Some of these things you can find on the internet, but certain things like the monastic vows, Bodhisattva vows, are typically reserved for people that are Bodhisattvas and monastics, so I won't repeat those today. Uh, But basically what we've done is we have resolved upon our Bodhi mind and that we are practicing cultivating goodness of deeds and benefiting every benefiting other beings. Um, so we've taken the vow that to engage in only wholesome deeds, and that our life, the good that comes from our life, will be a benefit to other individuals. So, um, so that's my personal journey through Buddhism, how I came to Buddhism, and what it means to me. And, uh, what I want to do now is talk a little bit more about the, um, some of the basic premises about Buddhism and some of those that we have are the Four Noble Truths, the Eightfold Path, uh, the Three Roots of Suffering. And I think, yeah, so, um, I'll take a little breather and I'll come back and we'll talk a little bit more about, uh, Buddhism. So the first thing that I want to talk about is the Four Noble Truths and from the Four Noble Truths, then I'll talk more about the Eightfold Path. When we speak about the Four Noble Truths, um, basically putting it in layman's terms, the Four Noble Truths, the first one is that the world is suffering, that there is suffering that is in the world. Uh, The second one is the cause of the suffering and it's saying that we are suffering because there is attachment The third noble truth is that there is a way to eliminate the suffering. And the fourth noble truth states that the way of ending the suffering is to follow the eightfold path. Um, So again, noble truths, basic, simple. um, Suffering is in the world. Suffering is caused by cravings. There is a way to eliminate the cravings. And a way to eliminate that craving, the attachment, is by following the eightfold path. When we think about the Eightfold Path, the Eightfold Path can actually be narrowed into three separate categories. And those categories are wisdom or the why, mortality or the how, and concentration, uh, thinking about the what. When we look at the wisdom, the Eightfold Path, the first two is that you wanna have the right view and then also having the right intention. When you think about the right view, some also substitute that word view for understanding. So if you're thinking about the right view or the right understanding, the question to ask yourself is am I seeing what's really there or what I want to see? So what's your right view of the situation? What's your right understanding? In my practice as a psychologist, the one thing that I help individuals do is to look at and to improve their understanding of a situation and I do this a lot as well when individuals are coming with concerns about other people, is to try to help them not only only to understand themselves, but to understand what may be going on with the other individual. So helping to get that sort of right understanding, the right view. And when you have the right intention, the question that you want to ask yourself is, am I truly committed to living compassionately? So that's the wisdom part into this eliminating of craving and the suffering. Is the, the the why and the wisdom? Is there the right view, the right understanding? and do I have the right intention? The how is again connected to the morality and you're looking at the right speech, the right action, and the right livelihood. The right speech, you ask yourself, am I saying anything beyond people behind people's backs that I wouldn't say to their faces, okay? the right speech am i speaking in a way that's true kind and also necessary the right action do i always practice what i preach the right action am i am i doing the right thing okay and then also the you're looking at the right livelihood right livelihood we can think about work okay you can also think about your purpose so the right livelihood you may want to ask yourself have i lost sight of my calling are you engaged in your calling? So again, it doesn't have to necessarily be work, uh, volunteering, you know, those types of things. Livelihood, what what keeps you living um, in, in that regard, the right livelihood. So that's the how. How do you get through this suffering, right speech, right action, and right livelihood. The third ones are what? And that what is considered that concentration? So what type of concentration that needs to be happening? So then with that, you need the right effort, the right mindfulness, and the right concentration. Right effort. Am I pushing myself too hard or not hard enough? The right mindfulness. Am I fully aware of the present moment? And the right concentration. Am I focusing on the right things? So again, that eightfold path, you're breaking it down into three categories. Wisdom, the right understanding and the right intention. Morality, the right speech, the right action, the right livelihood. And then concentration, you're looking at the right effort, the right mindfulness and concentration. Okay. So again, the eightfold path, engaging in those activities to help you to eliminate the suffering that's in your life. Okay. You eliminate the suffering that's in your life, and you therefore eliminate the suffering that's in the world. So, um, two of the big things, Four Noble Truths and then the Eightfold Path. Eightfold path. The other thing that um, we think about when you're looking at Buddhism and saying that there is suffering in the world, the acronym to think about when you think of what are some things that cause suffering, and that's gas. So gas causes suffering. And the gas is greed, anger, and stupidity. So greed. So one of that greed is, is holding on. Okay, holding on, um, not sharing, being selfish. The anger. Anytime I think about anger and talk to clients about anger, anger is wanting things to be your way. Okay, really wanting things to be you know in control, holding on, a little bit of resentfulness as well. And not the most appropriate term, but stupidity. Stupidity really it can substitute the ignorance, and the ignorance in regards to, you know, the three causes of suffering. Again, it's that attachment and thinking that things are always going to be the way that they are. Um, so when I'm working with clients, you know, those are some of the things when I think about the Buddhist practice and how do I incorporate that. As I do begin to look at where they in the Eightfold Path. Where are they with their understanding, intention, speech, mindfulness? If they're suffering, we also examine where is a person holding on to something? Where is their anger? Uh, Where is the the belief that also things are not going to change for them? So, you know, I feel like I've just given like a brief overview of what Buddhism is. uh, And I definitely have given a brief overview. But the one thing that I want to emphasize for me is that you know part of Buddhism it is looking at studying the teachings of Buddha listening to the talk of the um, you know the master that's given those um, another component of Buddhism is, is chanting and meditation and for me it's been a combination of all of those things and all of those things have gone into my my spiritual toolbox and I do have it listed that I am a Buddhist psychologist and when individuals come to me because of that, some of them are coming because they're already in their own way studying um, different Buddhist practices. So they're wanting someone that's going to speak a similar language to them. Some are coming to me uh, because they've experienced church hurts. And so they're looking for something other than your traditional Christian counselor. And the, when people come to me as a Buddhist psychologist, the one thing that I try to emphasize is that it's the person's, it's their accountability, that with Buddhism, Buddhism part of it is the recognizing that some of the difficulty that we're experiencing in our lives that, you know, it's hard to admit, but that we created that ourselves. And so in a way, it's getting that person through sometimes the right understanding to see where they have in a way led to, their behaviors have led to where they are today. And then with that, then knowing that it's within their power, me as their guide, to then help them to eliminate that suffering. Um, the other key point that people come to me and I engage in in my office with, uh, with the Buddhist practice, is then engaging in those different things involved with Buddhism, such as the chanting and the meditation, and then using those as a form of self-care. Part of Atlerian psychology that I talked about on the first episode of the podcast was also the the last component that we want to do with clients before we have them flee the nest is then examine where they are in their spirituality as well. And so then, of course, people do come to me um, for that as well. They want to have something that they believe is their spiritual practice. For some of them, it continues to be that Practicing in Buddhism for some of them, even though I'm a Buddhist, they then through that and through my listening and our talking, they even increase their faith with their own Christianity. Um, because I think that that's one thing that I enjoyed about being a Buddhist and learning about Buddhism is that Buddha didn't teach anyone to abandon their other faith. You know, um, so he was really Buddha is accepting. Buddhism is accepting, accepting to the point that we realize that there are many paths. And so Buddhism might be a path for someone and it may not be a path for someone, but there are, there are many paths and there's, you know, one destination and that destination, be it psychology or spirituality, it's really to help, help us all to be that better version of ourselves. And for me, uh, Buddhism, in addition to my psychology, and I'll talk about my next podcast yoga, that those are really the three legs that I stand on. So I do hope that you got something out of this podcast today a little bit about you know buddhism Um, buddhism buddha was a man buddha never claimed to be a god Uh, so i like to remind people of that as well and for those that are engaging in becoming buddhists there are certain vows that we um, take we adhere to Um, you don't need to take those vows if you want to follow the buddhist philosophy Uh, Some of the key components are taking refuge, again, taking refuge in the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha, engaging in our five precepts, which are no killing, no stealing, no sexual misconduct, no lying, and eliminating intoxicants. (laughs) And from that, knowing what the noble truths are, that yes, there is suffering in the world. Suffering is caused by attachment and craving. There is a way out of that suffering, and the way out of that suffering is to engage in the Eightfold Path, with the eightfold path you have your right view, your right intention, your right speech, your right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness and right concentration. Greed, anger and stupidity are three roots of suffering and being able to eliminate those will help to eliminate your suffering. So some people think that Buddhism is like oh like you know they always talk about suffering and that's not the case. So we talk about the elimination of suffering and then we also talk about our ways of how we cultivate good, cultivating good within ourselves and then also cultivating good within others. So that is my little bit of tea and therapy for this round. And I do hope that you enjoyed it. If you have any additional questions or any type of feedback, please uh, leave a comment, leave a message, let me know. And again, I thank you for staying with me to have the courage to be imperfect. And before I leave, I, of course, want to spill the tea. So tea, so teaching. I hope that I've taught you a little bit about Buddhism. Empowering, I hope that I have empowered you to continue to journey on your spiritual path, perhaps even empowering you to explore other and other spiritual paths. And advocating, advocating for you to engage in the spiritual practice of your choice. So again, thank you for listening. And I hope to... See you soon at one of my in-person's Tea and Therapy, or again, um, join you for this round in the podcast. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening. Please remember that any information presented on this podcast is designed for educational and entertainment purposes only. If you are currently working with a psychologist or other mental health professional, Please consult your provider before making any changes based on any information presented during this podcast.